In 2003, there was a CEO based for a company based out of Dallas named John Antioco. And John had been getting blown up via email, text message, phone call about a, this startup company that wanted to talk a potential merge, a buyout. They weren't sure what they wanted it to look like. But uh, it was, he got a call from two guys named uh, Mark Rudolph and Reed Hastings. And for months, they'd been messaging him and emailing him again and again and again. And Antioco's company was huge. They were like one of the leaders in their industry, probably the prominent company in their industry. And Rudolph and Hastings would not leave him alone. So finally, at midnight one night, he sends a, he sends a one email back to him and say, I'll tell you what, if you can be here by 11 a.m. tomorrow, you can come and I'll, we can have a conversation. See, Antioco's company was in Dallas and these guys were in the Pacific Northwest. And so when you get an email about this at midnight, you can't exactly take a flight that night at that point. So uh, they decided to take out an extra business loan just so that they could afford to charter a plane They chartered, uh, actually, it was Vanna White's plane for $50,000 to leave at 5 a.m. That's the most American thing you can do for a small business right there is charter out Vanna White's plane. They chartered out Vanna White's plane. They made such good time that they had time to run by Starbucks on their way into this meeting. They go into the meeting, and they meet with Antioco, and they say, we think that there's some potential merger conversations we could have. Um, and they begin having conversations about what this might look like. Antioco hears their pitch, and he said, look, it might be easier if we just absorbed your company. So let's talk buyout. If we bought out your company, give me your price. How much money would you want? Hastings and Rudolph looked at each other, nodded, and they agreed. They'd already talked about this, and they said, we'd like $50 million dollars for a buyout. And see, Antioco is a, was this classy businessman. This is why he rose to the top the way he did. He was the kind of guy who looked you in the eye when he spoke to you. He was the kind of gave, guy who gave you a firm handshake. He really listened to people when they had something to say. And he took everyone seriously as if, you know, to make them understand that they and their story mattered. But even Antioco couldn't help himself. He hears 50 million and he starts covering his mouth thinking, you can't can't be serious. See, Antioco knows that this company was already in debt. He knew that they took on even more debt to the tune of $50,000 by chartering a plane at 5 a.m. And he knew that some of their business model was messed up and that this idea had potential to be a really great idea, but, well, it hadn't really proven itself. And a number of things needed to take place in the world in order for it to take off the way that they thought it would. But Rudolph and Hastings say, no, we really genuinely think here's a few things, here's some trends we're seeing. And once this takes off, it will become an unstoppable train. Rudolph and Hastings still say to this day, when we saw Antioco cover his mouth trying to stifle a laugh, we knew the meeting was basically over. They had a few other conversations. He turned away everything else that they threw out. They left and began looking for other options and opportunities of ways to find investors and to still bring their company out of the mud. 
And that's probably the biggest mistake, at least from a business perspective, that Antiocho ever made and that he will be remembered for forever. You see, John Antiocho in 2003 was the CEO for a company called Blockbuster Video. And Mark Hastings, uh, Mark Rudolph and Reed Hastings ran this really tiny company in debt called Netflix at the time. True story, in 2003, Blockbuster Video talked about buying out Netflix, and Netflix pitched it, and they said, we just don't think it'll work. You see, at this point, Netflix was still a, uh, a mail. And you all remember, early on in Netflix, you could order it, and they would mail you a DVD because streaming hadn't become a thing yet. But they said, streaming's going to become a thing. We're already set up to make it happen. Blockbuster Video laughed and said, that'll never work. There's no way. And streaming, it sounds like it's a, it's a good idea in theory, but it's not great. Who all remembers Blockbuster Video? Okay. All right. Yeah, two hands went up here. You, y'all are liars right now, okay? <laughs> y'all weren't even alive when Blockbuster Video went bankrupt. That was in 2010. So uh, I'll tell you what. I'll let you prove it to me. Be kind and... Yeah, see, they don't know. One of them said pray. That was, that was okay. All right. So yeah, be kind, rewind, right? It was their, it was their big slogan. This is back when you had to rewind the, the VHS tapes, right? Anybody grow up with a, a really fast, fast speed rewinder? You thought you were really high tech when we did that, right? They came up with DVDs and we're like, no, we just got to throw those things away. Um, when we look back at this decision, though, and, and Antioco is tasked with it, and you know, he's had interviews and there have been conversations since of here's kind of what he's remembered as. And the truth was, Blockbuster had an opportunity to make a move and a shift in a direction that was going to be a little crazy. Uh, they, Antioco was told, hey, we want $50 million for you to buy Netflix. And he took a pass. Netflix is currently valued at just shy of $20 billion right now. I think it's safe to say that Antioca probably made the wrong decision. But part of the reason was $50 million is a really big investment into a company that will, might not lead you anywhere. Part of his thought process was the buyout was just to get Netflix to leave him alone. That was a lot of it. He'd been getting blown up for, for months. And something different shifts. Sometimes God calls us to areas and places that might not make a whole lot of sense, into unknown territories. In Genesis chapter 12, that's the exact call that ends up taking place. God goes and calls Abram, who we know later goes by the name of Abraham. And Abram, or Abraham, is living in a different time at this point. You see, Pretty much everyone in the world at this point practices polytheism or belief in multiple gods. So for Abram to then follow the voice of one God is paramount for starters. Imagine, Abram, Abram is like 70 years old when this takes place. And so it's not like it's this, you know, 10-year-old who thinks, sure, that sounds fun. Abram had lived a lot of life at that point. He had a wife. He had servants. He had cattle, he had uh, possessions, he had a life. He had family that surrounded the area that he lived, whom he had grown up with. Family, parents, aunts, uncles, cousins. And God calls him to up and move, and, and God says, go to the land that I show you. So when people say, oh, Abram, you're, you're leap. where are you going? I don't know. Well, who, who told you to go there? 
God? What? Okay, which gods? Just the one, and that's it. This is a foreign conversation to all of them. They're thinking he is absolutely crazy to go to an unknown land that he doesn't know the name of, and God just says, I'll show you when you get there. Just go. I'll lead you. This is a shift. Now, I want to also talk about how big of a deal this was because it sounds like, and it's very quick, right? God just tells Abram to go, and he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will make your offspring like the stars in the sky or the sand on the shores, and through your offspring, all nations will be blessed because of you. Now, this original promise, theologians actually point to, yes, This is a promise eventually leading to Jesus Christ. But theologians pretty much all agree that this was also a promise for the nation of Israel. This is where it starts. Now, there's also a uh, German theologian by the name of uh, Hans Walter Wolf who pointed out something really unique too. You see, Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11 is basically a bunch of stories of how God creates world and humans find a number of ways to fall apart, to shoot themselves in the foot, to get in their own way repeatedly through sin after sin after sin. We get Adam and Eve who have one rule, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they ate from it. God then says uh, a number of things, but one of the things he says a lot is cursed. He curses a number of things. After this happens, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel make an offering or a sacrifice to God. God appreciates Abel's more because, well, Abel tried in it. Cain gets jealous and kills his own brother. And God goes to Cain, makes him a nomad or across the earth, includes some curses along with it. Fast forward a few chapters and, and several uh, two or 3,000 years, and we get to Noah, where Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives are really the only good people left on earth, where the scripture talks about there's just wickedness throughout the planet at this point. So God, via a curse, chooses to flood the earth and rid the earth of all wickedness, except for two of each kind of animal and Noah and his family. And then we get the Tower of Babel right before this, where God decides, uh, because of the pride of the people on the earth, has them speak different languages and then scatters them across the earth. And Hans Walter Wolf points out that this is story after story of God putting special creation, his own unique divine design into the world and humans figuring out a way to ruin it. And so he was one of the first to point out in a book called Kerygma of the Yahwist about how the word curse in Genesis 1 through 11 appears five times. And yet, in Genesis 12, chapters 2 and 3, the word blessed appears five times. He says this is how God is nullifying the curses that have taken place that humans brought upon themselves over the course of time and history And all Abram has to do is respond to this invitation to go to this unknown land that he may be blessed, that his nation of descendants would be blessed, and that eventually all nations on earth would be blessed. So many of God's blessings and commands in this point also come along with a so that. 
Go to this land so that you may become a great nation. You may become a great nation so that all nations will be blessed by your nation. And theologian Michael Goheen writes a book called A Light to the Nations and talks about the original plan for God to redeem the world was through the nation of Israel. So this light, this missional community that we now call church was the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It starts right here in Genesis 12 through Abram, the father of that light to the nations. Now with this being said, sometimes God calls us to these unknown lands and these unknown territories. And so I want to invite someone from our church who, uh, like I said, is one of my favorites. Wade told me after, he's like, are you allowed to have favorites? I said, I don't know, but this person is one of my favorites. We all welcome, welcome Miss Melanie early to the stage. Melanie is one of, uh, is a special, special person at our church. Now, that being said, though, uh, with us being in Katy, Texas, you have not lived in Katy, Texas for your entire life, right? So can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up moving to Katy however long ago it was? I've been here 22 years. Okay, so this is home now. <laughs> it is yeah, home Yeah, it is. Now. Okay, good. Okay. Um, 22 years ago, 23 years ago actually now, a few months short of 30 years, my marriage ended. Mm. Uh, walked out of the courthouse alone and was in a place that to this day I still don't know how did that happen. <clears throat> um, a couple of weeks later I uh, went to church and as requested after Wednesday night church, <clears throat> the elders had asked to meet with me. And I was busy. Um, I was teaching women's class, and I was the hospitality person, and I was the wedding coordinator at church. <laughs> <clears throat> I also um, was the head. We had a puppet ministry with the high school kids. And uh, so I was busy. And... Uh, I was asked to stop all of those activities um, because it didn't look good for a divorced woman to be in a leadership position. I'd lost my home. My children were grown. Thank you, Lord, that they were grown and on their own. Um, I was in a place I didn't want to be. And now I respect those men. They, they really were doing, I believe, that our shepherds have to answer to God. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I felt like they were genuine. But once again, I was rejected. Um, <clears throat> my principal changed. And um, I had been teaching 14 years in a special program that I loved. And he changed that too. Um, my daughter was in Seattle, Washington. She said, Mom, why don't you move down to Houston where your sister lives. That way we just fly in uh, to Houston and we'll be there for Christmas. You were living in Sn Snyder? <clears throat> yes, yeah. Snyder is in West Texas uh, between Abilene and Lubbock. And so you would fly into Houston or Dallas and mm -hmm. then you would fly into Lubbock and then you would get in a car and drive 120 miles. So <laughs> <clears throat> I said, okay, let me see if I can find anyone that would take me. I, I've been teaching a long time, you know, uh, because in Snyder, people were like, oh, 
you know, you are, you've got too many years. Nobody will hire you. Nobody, nobody wants you. So I attended the ACU, McMurray, Hardin-Simmons teacher fair in Abilene. Me and all the 12-year-olds that were graduating from college yeah, yeah. that year. <laughs> <clears throat> and I met a man from Tomball, Texas. Well, that was close to where my sister was living. And he really liked me. He thought I would be a good fit. And I even interviewed on the phone with one of the principals. Casey, three times I came to Tomball. And major things happened uh, at last minute that I wasn't interviewed. Uh, the third time, I went to check out, and that superintendent did meet me that day at the school and say, we really think you're it. We want you, but, you know, we have to go through this process. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Please come back. Now, if you don't understand the distance between Snyder and Tomball, uh, it takes all day. Mm -hmm. It's about eight and a half hour drive. <clears throat> One time they even flew me in, which is unheard of in teaching circles, all you oil people that get flown around the country. <laughs> um, I, the secretary, I was handing her my badge, and she said, are you going to the Katie job fair tomorrow? I said, I, I've never heard of Katie, no. She slid a flyer across. She said, don't tell anyone where you got this, but <laughs> you've been here three times. Do you think this is where you're supposed to be? Hmm. So I got up that next morning. I attended the Katie job fair, came out at 4 o'clock and told my brother-in-law, I need an apartment on Fry Road. I've got a job either at Galbo or Williams. Went and found an apartment. They said, we don't have anything to show you. I said, I'll, I'll just make a down payment. They said, oh, you're gonna be a Katie teacher? Don't worry, we'll hold you one. I went home, sold my home that I'd raised my children in. And I was on my way to Katie, Texas. So, so that's uh, just a few changes in life that are taking place here, right? Mm -hmm. so, you're, so life as you knew it was changing in a number of ways. Your marriage ends. And then not only that, it wasn't just that you had a marriage there. And yes, your kids had grown up and they moved out. But obviously you were super active in, in the church. Snyder's not that big of a city. So people know who you are. You know who people are. And so a number of things are about to change. You knew life in a very different way. Now all of a sudden you moved to Katy, which wasn't as big as it is now, but still decent size and still bigger than Snyder. And so what are some fears and hesitations that you had about coming to this area? Tremendous fear. Yeah. Um, I had never lived on my own. I married at 18. Um, and basically, at 48, I had always had an allowance, a cash allowance to live on. Even though I had a job, I handed the check over, and I was given cash money to live on. I had never paid bills, insurance, filled out a form. I was lost, hmm. totally lost. Um, and it was hard. Um, I was told uh, by my father and anyone else significant, you can't do this. You can't do this, you won't make it. You won't be able to handle this. 
You, you've never handled money. You, you'll go broke. You won't be able to do this. You shouldn't do this. You need to stay here. And I just knew I couldn't. I couldn't stay. So there was a lot of fears. Uh, Snyder has a square, and there's some stoplights. There is a stoplight at a four-way stop. And I moved to an apartment on Fry Road, Night 10. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few of those. A few changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A few things. Um, I, I did feel like I wanted to, uh, to go to a big, huge church um, where I would be in a singles group. Basically, I'd plan to hide. Uh, so. So you ended up looking around a little bit, you find Cinco Ranch. What was the single, how big was the singles ministry when you got to Cinco Ranch? Um, I came in at, at Cinco one Sunday. <clears throat> Building was new, probably about 150 maybe in attendance, and Mark Williams was teaching class. And the class, I remember it well. First thing he did, he said, okay, how do people know that we are Christians, that we are members of the Cinco Ranch Church of Christ? So we brainstormed, you know, all the answers. Acapella, we read the Bible. And when all that was done, he said, why wasn't the first thing that you said was, they are known by how they love? And I thought, whoa, this is a different spot. But then I met Cecil and Cheryl Parker. They were shepherds at the time, the Lutheringers. Uh, Bruce and Carol Huff, they said, go to lunch with us. You know I like to go to lunch. So I said yes, and uh, we went to El Jarritos for Mexi Mexican food. And uh, I thought, wow, these people are really nice. And so um, I had plans to, I found out that I could attend Beth Moore live that Sunday night. She was doing a special summer series on Revelation. But see, the church I was at, if I had ever let anyone know that I was actually studying someone from outside my fellowship, hmm. I would not have, that would have been allowed. So I didn't want to tell them. Anyway, the ladies went with me, ended up that night. They went with me. Um, Cecil and Cheryl and I are big friends now. Cheryl and I are good friends. We did a lot of things together. But I wouldn't, I would go visiting other churches mm -hmm. even after I came here. I, yeah, you want to feel out the area yeah. and what might fit you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been from West Houston, mm -hmm. downtown, all the way over to First Colony. Mm -hmm. But then I'd come back uh, right here. I'd just come back and visit again. Well, all of the shepherds were traveling at the time and they would write notes. So I got a note one time from Rodney Lloyd and it said, we like you. We think you like us. <laughs> Apparently they don't like everybody. I mean, maybe somebody <laughs> didn't make the, all right. <laughs> and he said, if we continue to let you park in the guest parking, would you want to join us? <laughs> did you park in guests this morning? Just for I, the... I didn't. Okay. I was hoping you, all right. Um, he said, you know, this is a place to belong. Mm. 
and we think you fit here. Yeah. But you've been rejected and rejected. One person saying, hey, we think you fit here. Come belong with us. It matters. It matters. I still have that card because it matters. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I join right here at Cinco Ranch with no singles ministry, a small, small congregation where you could not hide. Everybody needed to go to work. Yeah. But I found a home. And so talk a little bit, and it can be about this church, but it can be about just moving to this area. How's God blessed and enriched your life in these last 22 years of you being here? Because you, you had to rediscover who you were. You had to rediscover your identity altogether. So what's that been like for you? Okay, see, uh, there's so many blessings. Uh, Y'all would all want to go to lunch before I got through. Um, <laughs> And I've really tried to not tell you everything. A lot of you know my story. But the greatest blessing is that I walk with my God. I know Jesus Christ. He is no longer... Y'all, I was... I had great Bible teaching growing up. By the time I left home... In this little bitty 100 people congregation I attended, I knew all the heroes of the Bible stories. I knew Paul's missionary journeys. I knew how the church was to be. I was taught the Bible. When I was baptized at 10 and I came up out of the water and came down and had communion the first time with my church family there, the elders handed me a new Bible and said, this is all you'll ever need. But you see, even in my little child heart back then, I knew, I knew that Jesus spoke to me, that the Holy Spirit lived in me, even though that wasn't taught, even though they said, all you need is this Bible. So when I came here, I was still working my way to heaven. I want y'all to know, I was doing everything I could to be worthy. And so when I would come, and a lot of times by Friday night, teaching is hard, and you are fed up with people, and you're teaching people, and you think, I will not slap my co-teacher, I will not slap my co-teacher, it will not go well, you need somebody to gripe at. And uh, I'd call Cecil and Cheryl and say, what are y'all doing? They'd say, why don't you come over? And they would listen to this broken broken, grumpy, horrible person. And I'd go on and on and on. And then Cecil, and if you know Cecil Parker, you know the gentle, kind voice, and you can hear it. He would say, Mel, what did Jesus ask us to do? And I learned. I'd say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And he'd say in the second part, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> he'd say, we're still working on that one, aren't we? I'd say, yeah, still working on that one. Some days I came and I was not worthy, couldn't be worthy. I was down on myself, saying all the negative, horrible things. 
when I get through and that sweet, kind voice that he has, he would say, so, so let me clarify. Let, let me get this straight. You need to do what because Jesus wasn't enough when he died on the cross? <laughs> yes, he was enough. <laughs> he was enough. They loved me. They loved me through all these years. And they walked beside me all these years. So you ask blessings. Blessings of this church family, the Parkers, all of the, uh, now we call them shepherds because they shepherd our souls. And they do shepherd my soul. Um, but I also have had the opportunity to study God's word and for him to open his word a lot through Beth Moore <clears throat> Bible study. We, we went to her live every Tuesday night. And I recently had to write an autobiography. And so I put my studies in chronological order. And when I saw it, it was like God revealed himself to me mm -hmm. through each study. And then I met a friend at summer school, and she said, you go to church somewhere, don't you? I'm like, uh, yeah. She said, I, I, I'm recently divorced. So I don't want to go to church by myself. Can I go with you? Okay. Well, <clears throat> we've been friends. We believe differently, but she's shown me a lot of things and how the Holy Spirit works in us today mm -hmm. yeah. and how God answers prayer. And y'all know, if you come talk to me, I'm going to pray with you, whether it's we're needing help, we're repenting, or if you have something wonderful to tell me and we're going to praise God. I talk to him a lot every day. Um, I believe the Holy Spirit moves in us and we need to learn to listen. I'm currently in class to become a better listener. That's my goal, is to be a better listener. Um, one of the things in this class I had to do, Casey, um, is read a book. I was reading a book this week, and I, I brought a quote I want mm -hmm. to share Absolutely. with everybody. Yeah. Um, I didn't know my story, by the way, so I didn't have to go back and check and see anything. <clears throat> this is talking about uh, what God is able to do. And in this book, he says, God is capable of filling every need that you have. But he said, I don't believe that was God's intent, just to he be the one that does everything. He said, from the beginning, God wanted us to have a family. That was his intent. If you think back, everything about God in the Old Testament, when in the beginning, what did he create? He created a family. And so everything, when you look at scripture through this, is modeled on being a family. He said you need spiritual mothers and fathers to speak life into you. 
You need brothers and sisters in the Spirit to walk the journey with you, to pick you up along the way. And you need children so that you can pour into them. And that's why I love our teens, is I want to pour in to every one of those teens that they can take what I've learned and that when they have to make a decision, they don't say, oh, I better ask my friends, I better ask this, I better ask this, that they just go on their face before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm listening. What do you want me to do? Because he wants the best for us. In this family, my Cinco Ranch family, I think God has given me you because it's difficult to stray too far away, to fall too low, to not know the direction to go. And it's easier to be closer to God when you're with family and can talk about it. 22 years ago, I came in this place a broken mess. And the little motto at the bottom of the bulletin was a place to belong. And it were people that took me, broken as I was, found the best in me, walked along beside me, and helped me become full of joy today. Along the way, God helped me with forgiveness. He showed me how he looked at me and that I was the way he wanted me to be. That I didn't have to be silent. That he had given me a mind and a voice. And then he put me in this place. If you don't have a small group to go to, come talk to me. You need us. We need you. And you're going, I'm an introvert. Uh, Y'all people, just back off. I need you. I don't understand you. <laughs> I do not know what that means. But I love you. And I need you to go. You're a little overbearing right now. God loves you the way you are. We need to be the family. I have a vision. And this vision is those people are coming up our walkway. They want to be part of this place because this is a place where Jesus is. Jesus loves us. And we are his people. This is a really special story that's a lot more than 22 years in the making. I hope you know that. Melanie was a part of our search team. Um, she was the unofficial uh, prayer warrior or uh, intercessor for, for the group. When we went into the youth ministry search, I had the opportunity of kind of being a fly on the wall during their meetings. And anytime you know, Alan would start the meeting, there was pretty much only one person he was going to pick to have lead the prayers. Uh, you're a part of our Silver Saints ministry. You're a part of at least one life group. It feels like you're part of six. Um, Ladies Bible study and, uh, you know, just about every, you've helped teach our students, you've helped teach our kids. And so I will say this is a place to belong. 
in large part due to you. That's really important. Um, I'm going to do something. The teens prayed over you before you came up here, right? Good. Nice. Um, I'm going to pray over her as well, if you guys don't mind joining me, praying over this special, special person. God, thank you so much for putting Melanie into our lives, for what she has meant to so many people, to meant to me, to my family. Um, and God, your work with her is not done yet. Uh, don't, don't let her hang it up. Let, let her just continue down the path that you have placed her on, that she continues to know that she is loved and valued, that she has a voice, and that she uh, has a story that matters just like every person here, that she continues to represent not just Cinco Ranch, God, more importantly, your kingdom, and that she sees just how much that she matters to you and to each one of us. It's just the name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Can you all show your appreciation to Ms. Melanie? In 1989, there was uh, a movie that brought tears to most men's eyes and left a lot of women wondering, what was that all about? It was this movie called Field of Dreams. And uh, who else seen Field of Dreams? If you haven't, you can find it on Netflix or Blockbuster Video, maybe, if you go look. Uh, but I, I won't give away the whole story. It's really cool the way this whole story is developed, though. Uh, so fun fact, today, and beginning, I don't know, three or four years ago, the Major League Baseball started to do a Field of Dreams game that is played in Dyersville, Iowa, where they actually made the whole set and the baseball field for the movie, Field of Dreams. And literally, the players come out of the corn. It's a really cool experience. Um, and they're going to have another one next year in Birmingham in July of uh, 2024. But the movie is based off this guy named Ray, uh, the plot goes along the lines of a guy named Ray Kinsella, played, like, played by Kevin Costner. Ray Kinsella has this vision. He is a farmer out in Iowa, he's, uh, and he's a corn farmer. And he has this, he hears this voice. He hears this voice toward the beginning while he's, he, while he's uh, harvesting some of this corn, and, and the voice says, if you build it, he will come. And he hears it repeatedly. He looks around. There's no one around. And he calls to his wife, did you, did you hear that? She said, we, don't, we didn't hear anything. We don't know what you're talking about. He hears it again and again. If you build it, he will come. Then he has this vision where if he, uh, if he plows down and, and knocks down all a, a bunt, a large portion of his corn and builds a full-size baseball field, then the late, great shoeless Joe Jackson will come back from the dead and play baseball there, and people will come to see him. And the, the movie starts off, a number of things take place after this. Uh, I'm not going to give spoilers. I mean, given, you've had like 40 years to go see it, but I'm not going to spoil it for you, okay? Um, but he ends up going through this. I will say for the first part, the first like 15 minutes of the movie, he does end up knocking down a bunch of his cornfield and building a baseball field. Now, this is Iowa, and this is a place where everyone grows corn. It's a bunch of farmers. And so farmers were coming from around the area to watch him do this, thinking, this man is crazy. Because if you uh, plow down all of your crops as a farmer, guess what? You just lost your income. And so a lot of the story is about he knocked down all his crops. How's he supposed to make money? But he continues going on and he's telling his wife this whole time, I just don't know how to express this other than I feel like I have to do this. I have to. 
I have to knock down my crops to build a baseball field so that a dead baseball player might come back and play on this field. As ridiculous as that sounds. There's a couple of stories I want to share with you when it comes to courage and following what God is calling us to do, as crazy as it might sound. For Melanie to go to Katie, where at the time she thought, this is an unknown place. I don't know anyone there. I don't know any churches there. Other than my sister, who's in the area, I don't know anything about where I'm headed towards. But God was calling her to a unique place. Sometimes being courageous means going. If you know the story of Jonah, then you know, and a lot of people focus on the the whale or the big fish that swallowed Jonah. I can't help but look at the original story where God goes to this prophet named Jonah, and God says, Jonah, I want you to go to the land of Nineveh, and I want you to tell them that they are wicked, that they are awful, awful people who treat humans horribly. They worship many other gods, and because of this, I'm going to destroy them. Not the best message to hear if you're a Ninevite. Jonah knows this. Jonah also knows the story of so many prophets who'd gone before him who said things like this and were slaughtered as a result of it. So Jonah decides, I will go anywhere except for Nineveh. Jonah hops on a boat that's going in the opposite direction. Uh, He ends up getting swallowed. Uh, He ends up being thrown overboard to save the rest of the boat. While he's in the water, a giant fish, a lot of people presume a whale, swallows him. Here's how bad Nineveh was. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah prays and praises and worships God, thanking him for saving him while inside the belly of a fish. It was literally, Jonah decided that it was better to be inside the belly of a fish than to be in the city of Nineveh. That's how bad Nineveh was. I'd rather be swallowed alive. And so he prays to God, but I can't help but notice that after this point, it is time for Jonah to finally decide to go. We can see a number of stories where going and leaving our context because sometimes it's comfortable to stay in what's known. Melanie had an opportunity to stay here. Hey, my whole life is here. Yes, you know, my marriage didn't work out, but I've got friends here. I've got a church family. I've got, I've got work. I've got a number of things that like it's familiar to me. And in so many other areas, you might have a familiarity of life, but sometimes God calls us to go to the unknown in order to fully experience the blessings that he puts into our lives. And then sometimes being courageous means staying. You know, we live in a culture right now, it is easier to quit than it has ever been in human history. When things aren't working out for you, just quit. Go do something else. There's a number, the job market is expansive. Uh, if, If you don't like how a certain aspect of your life is working out, just quit that aspect and go try something else. It's very, very simple, very, very easy on a number of levels. And sometimes God calls us when it gets hard, he tells us, stay right there. In Acts chapter 12, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and Paul is going from city to city, establishing churches and telling people in these, in these lands about this one named Jesus who gave his life for each and every one of them and for us. He's starting churches so that these communities can go out into their city and tell people about Jesus. And in Acts 12, Paul is in this place called Corinth. Now, if you know anything about Corinth, they're crazy, Okay. They worship a number of gods. They are way out there on a number of different uh, ideals and aspects. And Paul is teaching the Corinthians about 
Jesus Christ. He's teaching them about how Christ gave his life so that he may worship uh, him and only him. And so the Corinthians don't like this. And so there begins to be some stirrups. There's some uh, tension within the city. There's a little bit of rioting. There's a little bit of violence that takes place. And, well, Paul's thinking, okay, I'm going to go to another city where my life's not on the line. And God comes to him with a vision. And he said, Paul, I am here with you. I am going to take care of you. Stay here and continue preaching. And it would have been so easy for Paul to just say, I'm done. And get up and leave. Go to the next city. Preach there. And Paul stays for 18 more months to make sure that that church is established. He wrote a minimum of two letters to this church, probably more that we just don't have in our Bible. But as a result of this, Paul ends up establishing a church that becomes a very, very well-known epicenter for worship of Jesus Christ, despite all the different gods that were worshiped in that city. You've listened really well, and I'm almost done. I want to close with um, this, this one story from the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy is where it, it ends. But if you know anything about Moses, Moses is a really famous character in, in scripture. And, and I don't talk about a whole lot of some of his stories, but there's one that's really interesting. You see, Moses had, he'd done the whole going out into the wilderness, sees the burning bush, goes to the Egyptians, says, let, God says, let my people go. They don't. Ten plagues come down. Egyptians are, uh, excuse me, Israelites are liberated and they go and they are running and they end up getting pinned against the Red Sea. God parts the waters. Israel crosses on the other side and closes the waters on the Egyptians who chase them. They go to, toward the, toward the promised land. They end up struggling along the way. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses messed up a time or two himself. And so God says, I'm going to let you see the promised land, but I'm not going to let you go into it. And all this time, Moses was leading the Israelites. They're following him wherever Moses is led by God to go. And they get to the very end. Moses knows my time is coming. And, and God had already appointed Moses' successor. His name was Joshua. And, and the Israelites knew Joshua. Joshua was kind of Moses' right-hand man the whole time. So this was something that was expected. It was something that people believed was going to happen. But that being said, not only were they going to have a new leader, but as soon as that man, Joshua, became the new leader, they would immediately go into the promised land. So it's new land, new territory, new leader, new life. The people who had come out of Egypt, almost all of them had died. And so this, this new world that God was leading them into, and they knew that there was blessing, that doesn't mean it's not scary. And in Deuteronomy at the very end, chapter 31, verses 7 and 8, Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, in the presence of all of Israel, be strong and courageous. For you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. At any point in your life, when you are wondering, where should I go? What should I do? Sometimes the courageous thing is to up and go. Sometimes it's to hunker down and stay. And sometimes it, that staying is even more difficult. Sometimes it's making a really irrational decision that doesn't make any sense. Probably not cutting down all your corn and building a baseball field. But something along those lines, because 
Sometimes the best things that God does in the world are things that don't make sense to human beings because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so I'm going to invite our prayer team to head to the back. I'm going to invite our praise team to come on out at this time. And you have an opportunity this morning because God is inviting you to venture into unknown lands, whether that be up and going or staying here and now. God calls us to places where we might not actually know where we're going, but sometimes embracing mystery is one of the best blessings that we can do in our entire lives. Because while there is a number of mysteries of what is going to happen in my life, especially when I've lost someone close to me, I'm going through this really hard experience. Things at work or in my family are not well right now. It's even Moses who says to Joshua and to the Israelites, he goes before you and he walks beside you. And so if you are in a space where you would like to experience the presence of God because you're in an unknown territory or you feel called to one, we're going to invite you to head to the back and experience that through prayer as we stand and sing this next song.